0: You can tell I'm quite a bit shorter than your pastor, but my, uh, there we go. <laughs> I told, <laughs> I told Merit, my wife coming here, I said, well, I don't have perfectly coiffed hair and need a haircut. I realize I'm a whole lot shorter than brother Ben standing here and, uh, probably his shoes are a lot bigger than mine too, um. I, that's right, I have a flamingo laptop. <laughs> I say that jokingly, but also there's there's truth in it. Um, I can't fill Brother Ben's shoes, metaphorically. I can't do what he does. Uh, he's your pastor, and uh, he has a special heart for you all. And I believe that God has called each of us as we are to be used by him. I can't try to be like him, he can't try to be like me. And I do know y'all well enough, I feel like I'm at home, um, and I'm thankful for that. I I want you to know as I start, there's something every time I come here that feels special about coming to Taylor's Chapel, and uh, a lot of that is because y'all prayed for me and my wife at a time that we had a great need, and um, it still overwhelms me sometimes to see her sitting there and fine and... Now we're expecting our first child and doing February. When I was getting to know you all, she was paralyzed. That's what God can do. And He doesn't always answer prayers that dramatically, but He always takes care of us. So I'm humbled. I'm thankful to be here. What's on my heart to preach this morning, if I titled it, would be leading, preaching, and pastoring. This week I've had what felt like a few different messages sort of swirling around inside my mind and heart and um, even last night I didn't feel completely settled on exactly how I should approach this and so I asked for your continued prayers that I would bring exactly what the Lord would be pleased with and that he'll bring this all together because I, I still feel like it's almost like three different messages that aren't quite glued together yet but God can do that. So, if you want to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, that's where we'll start. I want to talk about, first of all, the idea of leadership, what a leader is, what a leader does, how a leader behaves. And I think one of the great examples of this in Scripture is this passage we're about to read about Moses Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 23. We'll read 23 through 30 of Hebrews 11. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months by his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. I want to pause there and talk about that briefly before we talk about Moses. Moses was born in a time that the king, the earthly ruler, made a law, a decree, that a certain type of child was not allowed to survive. And his parents, hiding him away, were jeopardizing their own lives. And it says that they hid Moses because they weren't afraid of the king's commandment. You know what they were more afraid of or more concerned about? What was pleasing to God. And there's times that God uses something like Moses' parents to bring about something that's so much greater than any of us could have ever anticipated. Moses not only was used by God later to deliver the people of Israel from Egypt, he was part of that deliverance of the people through Egypt as part of the lineage of how Jesus came. He had one of the most important jobs that ever existed And it started with the leadership of his parents. His parents being willing to do what was right. Even though it didn't fit the the command or the culture of the time. 24th verse. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter... "'Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God "'than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, "'esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches "'than the treasures in Egypt, "'for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. "'By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, "'for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. "'Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, "'lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them.' By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians, a to do, were drowned. And then by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about for seven days. These examples of faith. But we also see in here examples of leadership. And I want us to just, maybe this part of the message will be more of just a teaching or a reflection type thing. But the first thing that I... Saw in reading this passage is a good leader recognizes and embraces that there are things that are more important than his own personal comfort. Mo- Moses' parents laid this example of leadership, of surrendering to God. They recognized that there was something more important than their own lives. And then Moses, when it says, when he came of age, he chose not to be called the son of Pharaoh anymore, or Pharaoh's daughter. Let's, let's remember Moses' situation in life at that time. He had been spared by his parents. He had been uh, raised partly by his mother for, for probably a couple of years, and then by Pharaoh's daughter. She had compassion on him. God stirred in her heart to have compassion on him. And then he was raised as a prince of Egypt. For all intensive purposes, he wasn't Egyptian. Not by blood, but by lifestyle. And when he got old enough, he rejected all of that. He was jeopardizing his life. And not only was he jeopardizing his life, he was choosing a life of exile and discomfort over lavish riches. He went from being royalty to wandering around in the wilderness. A good leader does not put his own personal comfort ahead of the job. We see that with Moses. The next point that I see is a good leader is willing to make hard decisions for the good of the people in his care. A good leader is willing to make hard decisions for the good of the people in his care. We see that in the life of Moses, not just in this passage, but as we think about his life He was exiled from Egypt. He spent about 40 years before he ever came back to get the people out of Egypt. And then they spent another 40 years in the wilderness wandering around on a journey that should have taken a couple of weeks. But Moses was willing to make the hard decisions for the good of the people that he had been entrusted with. Even when it wasn't comfortable, even when it didn't seem to make sense, even when it didn't seem to be beneficial, he wasn't a perfect man. In fact, he sinned against the Lord in such a way that God said, you can't go into the promised land. But he did his best with God's help to try to do what was best for the people, not for himself. And a good leader at the same time. See, Moses took everything on himself in the beginning he was the appointed representative of god he was the appointed leader of god he served as the mediator he was a type of christ he was an example of all the things that jesus would do for us and in the beginning he literally went between the people and god they would come to him with their problems they would come to him when they sinned grievously and god wanted to destroy them and moses would go to god on their behalf and beg for his mercy And not only that, but he served as the go-between between God and the people. The people were too afraid to be in the presence of God. Moses went up into the mountain, heard the voice of God, felt the presence of God, spent time in his spirit, came back down and conveyed to the people what God wanted. And in that way, Moses was an example or a type of Jesus to come. But there came a point when he realized that he couldn't do it all. And that leads me to the next point that I thought about reading through this passage. A good leader, especially a good spiritual leader, recognizes that his strength is not of himself. There is a limitation to your strength as a good leader. Ben and I have had that conversation many, many times. And we both have a tendency, your pastor and I, we both have a tendency to drive ourselves, to push, to to, to strive, to try to accomplish or achieve whatever it is in our heart. And we've had this conversation. My brother one time told me this and I told it to Ben and I think he has it on his calendar as a yearly reminder. My little brother told me, a man can do anything, but he can't do everything. Moses realized that. He could be used by God to do just about anything. You think about the miracles that God brought to Israel through Moses? I mean, he did things nobody else has ever done. He came in boldness. He came, I say this sometimes, a one-line sermon and a stick before the most powerful man in the world. Let my people go. No weapon, no army, no bodyguard. God was his protector, God was his army, God was his bodyguard. And God had placed him in this position as mediator, but there came a point where it was too much for him to do everything. A good leader, I'll say it again, especially a good spiritual leader, recognizes his strength is not of himself, and he recognizes he can't do everything on his own. That's why you read in the first chapter of Deuteronomy, Moses uh, instituted this this process where there would be leaders put in place, leaders who had wisdom and the Spirit of God who would be over thousands and over hundreds and over tens and over fifties. People to uh, take care of all the little noisy stuff so that Moses could focus on what he needed to focus on. There's times, I want to say this as a side note, I haven't got got to the pastoring part yet, but there are times that a pastor can't do everything. And people in the church need to pick up and do different aspects or jobs or things so that he can focus on what he needs to. That leads me to the next point. A good leader spends time alone with God. A good leader spends time alone with God. Seeking to understand both reality and the will of God. I preached last Sunday a message called Be Strong and Courageous. And we looked at the life of David. And how he came strong and courageously and defeated Goliath. Part of how he could do that is he had been alone with God. Not just seeking to understand God's will, but understanding what reality was. I won't get into the message I preached last week. You can listen to it if you want to. It's online. But but God brought somebody from somewhere else to face the problems that Israel was facing because the ones who were entrenched in preparation and battle against Goliath had uh, influenced and infected each other so much with their fear that they no longer knew what reality was. They literally thought it was impossible to overcome Goliath. God brought somebody from somewhere else who had been alone in his presence out in the fields with sheep to come and see what was going on and understand what reality really was. God hasn't changed. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Our God can defeat him. A leader, a man of God, a preacher, a pastor, a father, a mother, none of us have that type of um, perspective and power unless we spend some time alone with God. David would have been completely different, probably ineffective if he had been in the army beside his brothers and under Saul and there in the perpetual noise. He had been alone with God and that's how he was effective. Jesus gave us that example. He was the the best person who ever lived. He was God in the flesh. And one of the first things we see him doing when he begins his earthly ministry is he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. He spent time alone. Forty days, not just alone with God, but being tried so that he would feel all of our temptations and all of our problems. But Jesus gave us that example of being alone with the Father. There were so many times that he got away from the noisy crowds, from the people that he was taking care of and helping and encouraging, and hopped on a boat. He would get on the little boat and go across to the other side and get away from the people. He had to be alone sometimes. A good leader has to spend time alone with God. I could give you more and more examples of how that was necessary for God to be able to work with and influence people. The final thing that I want to talk about as far as leaders is, a good leader, he also seeks wise counsel. And the multitude of counselors, there's safety. We're taught that in Scripture. But there are times that leaders with good intentions seek earthly counsel, And rely too heavily on it. Not only does a good leader seek wise counsel, but he is willing to stand in opposition to the counsel he receives when it conflicts with what the Spirit of God is revealing in his own heart. You could say it this way. A good leader is filled with the Spirit of wisdom. I have had the 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 privilege and the difficulty of working for some very bad managers and a couple of exceptional leaders. And there's a huge difference. Even though my job was a secular job, it wasn't a church setting, my bosses weren't pastors, there's still so many parallels. And I think about some of the poor managers that I worked under. And Almost none of these characteristics I just described applied to them. I think about some of the exceptional leaders that I worked alongside of. And they changed my life. They recognized things were more important than their own personal comfort. They looked out for their team. They were willing to make the hard decisions. I I had a, a, a supervisor one time and I sat outside of his office... And so, even though, even when people would come in, he would close the door. I could sometimes hear what was going on. And I heard the behind the scenes battles he was fighting for us. And I saw the way when we would have team meetings that people would be so hard on him. And I would sometimes take him aside and tell him, Listen, you don't know what he's been doing for you, you don't know. I've been hearing it. He's been fighting battles you don't even know about. That's part of what a good leader does. He's behind the scenes. And when you extend it to a spiritual leader, to a pastor, he's behind the scenes interceding with God, praying, uh, begging God for help, trying to get advice from wise people, doing all these things to try to help the people underneath him. He's filled with the spirit of wisdom. Let's go to the next part of the message. And if you want to mark it in your Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'll begin reading in verse 1, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul's writing to Timothy he says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, Exhort with all long suffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts they will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and they shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. Paul... Uh, The spiritual father in the faith of Timothy is writing to his younger brother, a newer preacher, and giving him, I think, what he believes is some of the most important advice he could ever give to a young man. Because Paul recognizes he's not going to be alive much longer. He's going to die soon. And in light of that, he's saying, what what do I need to tell this person who's going to keep preaching the gospel after I'm gone? And this is what he tells him. Preach the word. We're talking about preaching now. Preach the word. What does it mean to preach? If you look at that Greek word that we have translated here as preach, it means to proclaim after the manner of a herald. always with the suggestion of formality gravity and an authority which must be listened to and obeyed it can also mean to publish to publish to proclaim openly something which has been done it was used of the public proclamation of the gospel and matters pertaining to it it was made by john the baptist by jesus by the apostles and other christian teachers Preaching has this connotation of coming with some authority and telling the people who are listening about a reality they may not be aware of. You remember when the, the heralds of God, the angels, came to the shepherds and announced the birth of Jesus. They told the shepherds about a reality that they weren't yet aware of. They didn't know what was they told them. That, that's what a herald does. And there's this I think it's a disturbing movement in churches today, in modern Christianity, that, that overemphasizes preaching expositorily from the written word and completely dismisses heralding a revelation from God to the people. Now, don't misunderstand me. I, I, I don't have the authority to compose Scripture that's done. This Bible, this, this part between two leather covers, this is the written word of God that holy men of God were inspired to compose by him. And what I do when I preach is not the same thing as what Jesus did or what Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. It's not, it's not on the same level. And yet, this is what I want to talk about in this part there's still, it's necessary to have an express revelation from God when you preach. It's not just pulling out this book, reading the words, and then academically telling you what the verse means. There should be something alive about it, at least part of the time. There should be a sense of authority, there should be a sense of awe at least part of the time. When I listen to men of God preach, not every single time, because we're human, but there is a sense that it is weightier and heavier and more serious than just the words they're saying. We have this example with Jesus and the people that even realize who he was on the road to Emmaus. They were talking with him. They they didn't intellectually fully understand. But there was something about what he was saying that was powerful and alive that later they looked back on, and this is how they expressed it. Did not our hearts burn within us as he talked with us? When you hear a God-called man bring something from the heart of God to the people, many times it will be... Deeper than something like just fascinating in your mind. It'll be more than that. And maybe not until later, maybe until years later, you might look on it, back on it and say, there was something stirring inside of me. There was something deeper than just thoughts. There was something deeper than just teaching. There was something even more real. Preaching should have that, that element. Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. We don't just preach our own ideas or our own thoughts. We don't just preach... Uh, <laughs> I've had people ask me before, uh, how do you how do you write your messages? And I, I said, well, I don't I usually write them. I've only ever preached from a manuscript once or twice, and it was because it was so specific, I had to make sure I didn't misspeak. But there is a... A guiding and a leading and a nudging and an impression from the Holy Spirit when you preach. I want to read you this passage from the Amplified Version because it really expands on what Paul is teaching to Timothy. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word as an official messenger. Be ready when the time is right And even when it's not right, keep your sense of urgency. Whether the opportunity seems favorable or unfavorable, whether convenient or inconvenient, whether welcome or unwelcome, correct those who err in doctrine or behavior, warn those who sin, exhort and encourage those who are growing towards spiritual maturity with inexhaustible patience and faithful teaching. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine and accurate instruction... Instruction which challenges them with God's truth. But wanting to have their ears tickled with something pleasing, they will accumulate for themselves many teachers, one after another, chosen to satisfy their own desires and to support the errors they hold, and will turn their ears away from the truth and wander off into myths and man-made fictions and will accept the unacceptable. But as for you, be clear-headed in every situation Endure hardship without flinching. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill the duties of your ministry. That's part of the job of a preacher and a pastor. It's not just, I hope you can see this. I don't know if I'm conveying it clearly. Preaching is so much more than just reading a verse and telling you what the verse meant. One of the Old Testament scriptures that I often quote says, Without a vision, the people perish. Y'all know that one? I usually hear it used when people want to start some type of vision with, the, with a group or some type of building program and they want to accomplish something without a vision, we'll perish, we need a vision. And that, that's okay, but, but what it actually means, what, what the verse says in the original is, where there is no direct revelation from the Lord, the people cast off restraint. Preaching should include a direct revelation from God. I believe you have that with your pastor and you sense it. Maybe not every single time he stands, but what a blessing it is to have a man stand in this place and bring a revelation from God. And if you've sat under preachers, I put quotes because I think there are some well-intentioned people who say they're preachers and they... they kind of picked it like a job or a career and went and studied and there's no, there's no stamp of God on their life. There's no anointing of the Holy Spirit. There's no fire in what they say. If you've sat under that kind of preaching and, and found how tiresome it can be because there's a lack of revelation, you, you realize how special it is to have a man preaching revelation from God. It's not revelation that stands in contradiction to the written Word of God. If we ever think God has told us something that contradicts Scripture, it's simple, we're wrong. (laughs) That's easy. But it is a revelation from God that brings the living Word out in a deeper and more personal and more purposeful way than if you just read a verse. The Holy Spirit does that. He does that to our own hearts as well, but He does it especially through His called messengers. When I talk about what preaching is, we, we have to first say it's not preaching if it's not a preacher. If you're not called by God to preach, if you haven't been selected by Him to carry the gospel in that way, it's not preaching. It might be testifying... It might be very good, it might be teaching, it might be purposeful. But Jesus gave an example when He went and hand-selected His apostles, the disciples who were the first 12 members of the church. They comprised the first congregation. He actually called them out, took them from their vocations, from their life obligations, and said, Come, follow me. Now there's uh, a sense to which that applies to all Christians. God calls us out and says, come follow me. But there's a a double sense to which it applies to a preacher that even after God has saved you, I remember when God called me to preach. I remember where I was sitting. I remember how I felt. I'll tell you how I felt, and I don't know why I need to say this, but I felt heavy like I did when I was lost, but there was no fear with it. I felt burdened. And it wouldn't go away. And I remember very sincerely saying, God, what do you want me to do? I'll I'll do whatever it is. I'll do it. Do I need to go talk to somebody in the service? Do I need to testify? Do I need to pray? Just show me. And I got to the point of really wanting to know, and then I said, not that. (laughs) I felt so unable Moses felt that way. Uh, That's what I'm trying to impress on you from my heart because I've experienced it. A preacher doesn't call himself to preach. He doesn't just decide to be a preacher. When God pulls you out from your own plans and said, I am making you a person, a preacher to preach the gospel, it's overwhelming. No matter who you are, you feel inadequate. You feel like Moses who said, "I, I can't even talk. And God said, I'll help your mouth. You feel like Isaiah, who said, "Woe is me, for I am undone. For I'm a a man with sinful lips, and I dwell in a land of people with sinful lips." And God cleansed his mouth. I remember when the Lord called me, and that day, even though I realized that it was so overwhelming and so different than anything I would have done to myself, that I, I took about a year wrestling with it, and I was miserable. And I would go to church because I didn't want to get far away from God, but I was afraid to get too close because I knew I'd have to surrender to that. I think part of why, and I see this in your pastor too, I think part of why it was hard for me to surrender immediately is because I realized that once I did, it would be complete and unconditional. Once I did, I could never again do whatever I wanted once I did say, yes, Lord, you can use me as a preacher, I would have an obligation to preach what was true, no matter how uncomfortable, no matter how disliked it would make me, no matter how much I didn't want to say it. I would have a greater responsibility. And I remember the first time I ever tried to preach, it was from Ezekiel 23, about God telling him, sound the alarm, sound, blow, blow the, 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 the alarm. And if you don't, the people's blood is on your head. But if you do and they don't respond, it's on them. A preacher has an obligation that... It's different than anything I've ever experienced, it and I don't know how to describe it. But when God puts something on you that you have to say, you have to say it even if it kills you. I mean literally, if it leads to your death. If it leads to people not liking you. If it leads to people in the congregation misunderstanding, and that happens... And I'll talk about that more in a moment. But preaching comes from a person that God has hand-selected and called out and set apart. We preach, as, as Paul told Timothy, preach the word. That is what we preach. The gospel, euangelion in Greek, is the good news. But the good news is not just some health, wealth, and prosperity. It's not just some moral therapeutic deism. It is the good news of Jesus which this is this is actually how it appears this this is the gospel you 're a mess. your life is broken, the world is broken you can 't do it on your own. Jesus can help you <laughs> it 's not all like uh, you could be happy all the time that 's not the gospel. The gospel's deeper than that. We preach Jesus and him crucified that 's what Paul said. I, I determined when I came among you to to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. People sometimes twist that verse a little and they 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 act like you're not supposed to learn about anything else in the whole world. But Paul, the man who said that, was one of the smartest, most learned men around. And he didn't literally only talk about Jesus and nothing else. He preached truth that drew people to Jesus. Do you remember when he, his heart was stirred within him and he went to the Areopagus and he was in a pagan culture where there were f- false gods probably hundreds of them, and he came across this inscription that said, to the unknown God. And he said, when I was walking through, I saw your inscription to the unknown God, and Him I declare to you. In Him we live and move and have our being, as your own poets have said. Paul used false religious literature to convey truth to them so they could understand it. He didn't just come in there saying, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He preached truth in a way that could be grasped by them. And so when he says, I came among you preaching Christ and him crucified, it's everything that God reveals to get to the hearts of men. Not just John 3.16. The gospel so much deeper. Then God sent his son into the world. Everybody who believes is saved. Do you believe? Yep, okay, you're a Christian. It's so deep, much deeper than that. And you know it is. Jesus is the foundation of what we preach, he is the substance of what we preach, he is the purpose of what we preach. And everything we preach is an ultimate desire to draw people's attention to him, to the Messiah. John the Baptist preached and there was a time when Jesus was walking up and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But he preached a whole lot of messages before that where he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see what I'm saying? It's more than just talking about Jesus. It's talking about truth. How should we preach? We see in this passage, and I want to just reflect on a little bit of that, Obviously we should preach with love. If a preacher doesn't have the love of God, I've seen some preachers preach in an angry posture and probably I've even done that at times. It's not effective. It must be motivated by love. And I want to talk about the other side of that coin though because we live in a culture where people think if you say anything to make them feel uncomfortable, it's not loving. And that's simply not true. Sometimes the most loving thing you could ever do to a person is to tell them a truth that makes them uncomfortable. I've used this analogy many times, but think about it this way. If you had a family member who you knew was suffering with cancer, and for some reason they weren't aware of it, the best thing you could do is make them uncomfortable. That's a scary thought, but it's better for them to know the truth about it so they can take appropriate steps to try to mitigate it. If I, as a messenger of God, am aware of, or even if I'm not aware of, sometimes he burdens us to preach things that we don't even know about. I've had people come up to me sometimes after preaching and saying, "How did you know that about me?" And I'll say, "I don't even know you. What are you t- I've never talked to you before. I don't know anything. But that's part of the the revelation of the Spirit. But there are also times that a pastor is obligated to preach about issues that are present even if he doesn't want to and even if it makes you uncomfortable. It's part of his duty. Of course you preach with love, but you also need to preach with boldness. You'll see why this is so important to me at the end of the message. I'll give you one example of that, Acts 4:13. When the people saw the boldness or courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, the people were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. What convinced the people that these men, Peter and John, had been with Jesus? It wasn't logic. It wasn't fair speech. It wasn't that they were great orators. It was that they were speaking with boldness and authority that was greater than anything they possessed. They said the only way these men could preach this way is if they've been with Jesus. It's such a delicate balance to be filled with the love of God and to be propelled by the boldness of God at the same time. But it's so necessary when we live in a culture of such watered-down preaching that some people literally think that if you make me feel uncomfortable, you don't love me? It's hard sometimes to be bold. It's hard sometimes to be honest enough when you know people are going to misunderstand and they're going to get mad at you and they're not going to like you. It's hard. But boldness motivated by love, boldness to preach the truth is what we need. Because we're preaching, the purpose of preaching is to warn people. To let them know the truth, to let them know there's a way out. Destruction is coming. The end of your life is, listen, one thing that, that this year, 2020, has taught people is the reality that has always existed. Life is dangerous and you could die at any time. That is true and it's always been true. Your life is in peril and jeopardy every day. And every morning you wake up, you should thank God that you're alive because it might be the last time you wake up. I'm not saying that to try to scare you. I don't believe in man invented fear, but that is true. We preach to warn men, listen, you're going to die one day. And when you do, eternity waits for you. And you are going to spend eternity either in the presence of God or suffering in darkness and pain. That's heaven and hell. That's truth. And people don't want to hear about it because it's uncomfortable. But I want you to know that Jesus has made a way for you to get out of eternal suffering and it requires you to surrender and repent and come to Him when He calls you. As Christians, those of you who already know that, it's our job to live in such a way that people see the truth that this life is not all we have, that there's something coming after this that's going to this life is a drop in the bucket or a speck on a on a timeline. There's so much more time after you die. We preach to warn people. And sometimes a preacher is so overcome by his Burden for people to be saved that what he preaches can come across as insensitive or uncaring. Sometimes it's hard to have that weight. What does preaching produce? What does preaching produce? Some people think that preaching should only bring about a feeling of peacefulness. A sense of uh, warm calm. Or something like that. I've come across people who say they're Christians and I guess they're saved. But they believe that. And when they encounter a preacher who preaches something that doesn't make them feel warm and peaceful. They don't like it. Another growing trend I've seen in modern religion is this. Expectation that a preacher's main job is to help everybody get along. That's dangerous. And as much as I like for people to get along, as much as your pastor likes for you to have harmony and peace and get along, that's not our primary job. Our job is to preach the truth, our job is to bring the revelation from God, our job is to teach. And expound on scriptural truths. And sometimes that doesn't make you feel warm and fuzzy. Let me prove it to you with scripture. I've had people tell me some messages I've preached that that was, you shouldn't. I've even had people say this I agreed with everything you say, but it shouldn't be said in church because it's divisive. Let me read you what Jesus taught. And I want to expand on this. I don't want anybody to take it out of context. Luke 12, verse 49, Jesus speaking. I came to send a fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptized to be baptized with, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on the earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather Division. For from now on, five and one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Whew. That's heavy. Let me give you another time Jesus said something similar. Matthew 10, beginning in 34. Do not think that I'm come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's talk about that for a minute. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, said... I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. He said, some of you think I came to bring unity, I didn't. I came to bring division. What was he talking about? Because the Spirit of the Lord does produce unity among people who are interested in conforming their lives to the light of the Holy Spirit. And for everyone else who are interested in doing whatever they want that's not conformed to the Holy Spirit, it's, it, they don't like it. There is a division that happens. We even see this taught in the Old Testament. Come out from among them and touch not the unclean thing. Be ye separate, says the Lord. There is a separation between the people who submit themselves to the revealed will of God and those who choose not to. I can't tell you the number of people that I've talked to who told me about a powerful conversion, a birth with Christ, where they went home to their families... And got in a fight. Some of my best friends. God did something in their heart. They wanted to go home and tell their parents and it was a fight. I met a man from Indonesia one time who was saved. This is worth telling. He got very sick. He was over here studying uh, school. And he got really sick and he was hospitalized and he had these acquaintances from the college that were Christians, and they always tried to talk to him, and he was always, he grew up, he was a Muslim. And they came to him in the hospital, and they said, can we pray for you? And he said, no. But he was too weak to do anything about it, so they prayed for him anyway. And God saved him. You know what he told me with tears? He said, I can't go home to my family, or they will kill me. That's when I was in college. I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. That's what Jesus said. Now, his purpose wasn't to come and cause division. His purpose wasn't to divide people's house. His purpose wasn't to make children dislike their parents and parents dislike their children. His purpose was to preach truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Anyone who comes to the Father has to come through me but he recognized the reality that if i preach truth, if i live truth and not just live my truth, but if i am truth, the truth. that's going to divide people because not everybody wants that. it's so necessary even if it's uncomfortable for a preacher and especially a pastor to be willing to preach truth even if it appears to cause division. I've preached this and I think, Brother Ben, I think I heard him preach it recently in one of the messages I listened to. Uniformity is not the same thing as unity. Conforming to everybody's group collective opinion, that's not unity. Unity is all of us being different body parts. Man's idea of unity, the the secular idea of unity, is that we all become toes, or fingers, or knees. So we all feel the same, and think the same, and act the same, and want the same thing. But scripture teaches that the members of the body are all different. A nose doesn't do what ears do. Eyes don't do what toes do. Could you imagine (laughs) trying to walk on your eyeballs? Or trying to hear with your nose? We see that, and it's comical, but it's true. God doesn't expect us to all be the same. He's called different people who are going to remain different to submit themselves to his leadership and authority and have unity even in the midst of our different desires, opinions, and personalities. Unity is so much deeper and more lasting than uniformity. And that's what Jesus is talking about. I've talked to people who, this happens often, a, a family, they're not Christian, they don't know the Lord, maybe they don't go to church, and, and maybe a neighbor or somebody picked up one of the children and took them to revival, and, and the child was saved, went home, and there was this big fight, and then later, God kept working, the parents became saved, and the siblings, it was like that with my grandfather, his mother was saved after he was That's when the real unity starts. But it came as apparent disunity in the beginning. I'm going to wrap up with this talking about pastoring for a moment. And I've alluded to a few things. First of all, a pastor can't be a pastor if he's not a preacher. He might be a decent CEO, he might be a pretty good church leader, but he's not going to be a pastor if he's not a preacher. Rather than giving you a dictionary definition of a pastor, I could just say briefly, the New Testament usually uses the term uh, elder or bishop, but in our modern language we use the the word pastor. And a, a pastor is somebody who's God called, this is what I believe, that a pastor should be God placed, a God called preacher who is God placed in a particular congregation for a particular season. And it's very apparent to me and it's apparent to you and it's apparent to Brother Ben that not only has God called him to be a preacher, and I knew him before he was a pastor, but he has placed him here at Taylor's Chapel for this season as a pastor. I don't know how long that season will last. It may be years or decades down the road. I don't know. But there will come a time, most likely, where his season of pastoring here is finished And he'll be relieved and go to something else, but he'll still be a preacher. So a pastor, his identity as a preacher never goes away, but he needs to be placed by God in a congregation to minister and to help and to care about those people. But rather than, again, talking about dictionary definitions, I want to talk about, subjectively, what it's like to be a pastor. God called me to preach. I told you a little bit about that. And I feel like my identity as a preacher. I'm not pastoring currently. That's okay. I haven't stopped being a preacher. I tried to pastor for eight or nine years. And there were aspects of that that were harder than anything I can describe. I've talked to pastors who are also fathers. And they said the closest thing I can compare it to is trying to be a good dad. <laughs> um, But there is a weightiness, there's a responsibility as a pastor. That it's not just like today I can come here and preach and I'm going to go home. And if I upset some of y'all, I'm probably not even going to know. Unless we're close enough that you want to call and talk to me about it. And by the way, I would love for you to if that ever happens. But as a pastor, you get to know the people in the congregation like they're your family. You start reading their body language. You start sensing when things are off. And if you preach something that upsets somebody, you're going to feel it. There's no just like dropping the message and then leaving. There's a responsibility. There's a heaviness. There's a weightiness. Listen, there's sleepless nights and anxious days. I lost more sleep pastoring than I ever have over anything else. And I'm not saying this to complain. I'm just telling you it's tough. You agonize at times over whether the congregation is receiving what they need. You feel inadequate. You don't feel good enough. You don't feel like you have enough. You get up and preach and you feel like you fall flat on your face sometimes. You never feel like you quite did what you should. Somebody's always mad at you. That's pastoring. Somebody always misunderstands something. Or there's some type of division that shouldn't be there. Or there's some type of disharmony. Or there's some marriage in shambles. Or there's some brother and sister who won't get along. Or there's some person who won't come to church because some other person hurt their feelings. And, And all of, I'm not saying it flippantly. I'm saying it because I don't like it. It's hard. I love preaching. I didn't like pastoring. I will again if God places me somewhere, but it will have to be from Him because it takes a special grace that I don't possess. You know, before God called Ben here to this church, He told me, I'll never be a pastor. He probably told you all that too. But God had a plan for him to be here. But we had talked about it. He had seen it in other people and He understood there's a weightiness. There is an aspect of pastoring that's not rewarding. It's not fun. It's just hard. I want you to know that. I believe that the message Ben preached last week was a good example of that. And I want you to know, as somebody who doesn't come here all the time, as somebody who loves you, I mean, y'all feel like family to me. But I want you to know, like you may not understand how hard it is to preach a message like that. And and you you might not understand if you don't quite agree with everything he said, or even if you do agree with everything, Brother Ben said last week. It's hard to feel an obligation and a duty and a burden as a pastor. And by the way, I I haven't talked to him since then, and this he didn't tell me to come here and you know try to make you like him better. Y'all already like him enough. But this is on my heart. Because the enemy is always trying to take little things and separate us and divide us and, and make something bigger than it is. And I, I want you to understand, if you don't see it, his heart in a message like that. We've had conversations all year, sometimes in tears, about how churches need to respond to this COVID issue. It's hard and there's no clear answers. And he did his best. I've listened to the message multiple times to, to, to f- see. I believe he did his best to try to preach what God put on his heart. It wasn't perfect because he's not perfect. And there might have been points that we don't all agree with. But there there should be room for, for grace in messages like that. Because... There's a weight and a burden and a need as a pastor to try to bring health and healing and teaching to a group and not know really how to do it. I guess I just want you to know, like I've had to preach messages like that. It's hard because it's polarizing. It's like people are either like, yeah, yeah, I agree. Or the exact opposite. There's not a lot of in between. These days, there's not a lot of pastors who will preach that way. Not just masks, not just COVID, not just the things we've seen in 2020, rioting and race relations and all this other stuff, but a lot of pastors won't talk about anything controversial. That's dangerous. And I hope you realize, even if sometimes it makes you uncomfortable, how Blessed you are to have a pastor who's willing to talk about hard things. It's necessary. So I want to say specifically, concerning societal issues, there's a whole lot of people, Christians, who seem to have this attitude about different societal issues. Well, the Bible doesn't say anything about that, so you shouldn't talk about it. To that I would respond, okay, but fine, the Bible doesn't say anything about that specifically. So how are you going to figure out what you should do? Where are you going to get your information? If you don't get it from the Bible, you're going to get it from somewhere else. And part of a pastor's burden and duty and obligation, this is the part that's so hard, is to help people rightly divide the word of truth. Rightly understand the written word of God. Because there are a lot of things that this Bible doesn't specifically talk about. And yet I believe God has given us a guidebook for our lives in this Bible. I believe God has expressed his will for all kinds of situations that might not be spelled out explicitly, but God's underlying will is clear. So sometimes it's hard as a pastor when you know you need to preach about something that's not specific. I mean, the Bible doesn't say what to do about these different things. And the best thing, we, the only thing we can do as a pastor is when God bird, burdens us, we spend a lot of time with Him. We try to study, we try to talk to wise people. We, but ultimately, we have to try to hear from the Holy Spirit and bring what we feel He's burdened us with. It's so necessary. The pastor, this is scriptural, he must be apt to teach, able to teach. There are times that it's his obligation to combat false doctrine, to expose logical fallacies, and to stand against scriptural and practical falsehoods. Last week's message was an example of that. Expose logical fallacies, combat false doctrines, and stand against scriptural and practical falsehoods. Part of, I think, the purpose of church, primarily to worship God, but part of the purpose and part of the pastor's job is to help people know how to think. Because whether you realize it or not, the, the secular world around us, especially children, is training people, conditioning people, brainwashing people, not just what to think, but how to think about it. And if God's people don't counterbalance that, not through being extreme, but through being willing to speak truth, Who, who's going to? Who's going to do it? There's examples of that. I, I won't spend much time on them, but I mean, you can read First Corinthians chapter seven, and even though the Bible is, is uh, the revealed will of God and the, the written revelation from him, there's parts in that passage. Paul's talking about marriage. And he clarifies, if you read that passage, there's times that he says, um, the Lord is saying this through me, and then there's times he says this, I, Paul, not the Lord, am telling you this. That's in the Bible. Some people think a pastor should never express his opinion, but sometimes all we can do is look at Scripture, spend time with God, try to understand what's true, form an opinion, and, and tell people. And you know what? Our opinions can change. But Paul, even in the Bible, said, I'm, I'm telling you my opinion. In another place he said, I'm telling you my opinion, and I think, I think I have the Spirit of the Lord with it. I think I'm telling you the best thing. It's not perfect. Because we're men. <laughs> the message we preach is so much greater than we are. The revelation from God is greater than anything. I'm always going to mess it up every time I try to preach I don't say that flippantly. I say it to say that's just how it is. So I want to say this in conclusion. Christians are humans. Humans compose society. And society influences humans and what they experience. And therefore that affects the church body. And the Christians inside of the church are humans who are influenced by society. And so... Preachers have to be willing to talk about societal issues. We have to. I don't think that's all we should talk about. Jesus should be the primary focus. Scripture should be the primary thing that we spend time on. But what what is the point of Scripture if there's no practical application? If you never learn how to live in the world from the Bible. like It's great to come here and exposit from Scripture and say... Oh, this is actually what this word means here. It didn't really mean this thing. But if you never understand, okay, what am I supposed to do with the other 95% of my time? How do I apply the truths? So it's necessary to do that. We're called to be light and salt, aren't we? Have you thought about what those two things are, what they do? And that starts with the preacher and extends to everybody in the congregation. Jesus taught us you're the salt of the world. If the salt loses its savor or its saltiness, if you stop being salty, you're not good for anything except to be thrown on the ground and trampled under people's feet. That's pretty heavy. We have a culture, including among religion, that teaches us that the best thing we can do is to get a little less salty so we don't make people uncomfortable. Water down our salt enough that the non-salty people can tolerate it. And then everybody can all blend together and then after we spend a lot of time not being very salty, maybe they'll listen to us. Listen, you know when salt is in your food. And this was a time when salt was used as a preservative. Have you ever had country ham? It's a whole lot different than city ham, isn't it? You know it's salty. And if it's not salty, it's rotten. Right? Because it hangs and grows mold on the outside. If that, if that ham doesn't have enough salt, it's not safe. If churches don't have enough salt, they're not safe. If pastures aren't salty enough, you better watch out. I'm not saying we should stop being loving, but we're called to be salt. The other thing we're called to be is light. Anytime there's light, it is unmistakable. And what light does, it dispels darkness. It scatters darkness. When there's light, it's like the darkness runs out of the way of the light. Have you ever been in complete darkness? I'm not sure if I have. I think I might have been, but it's hard to know because there's so much light around us. But the darkest place I've ever been, I mean, visually, it's like, I don't know, it's like almost deafening. Because it's, our lives are never like completely dark. You know, I get out of bed and I say it's dark, but I can see to get to the bathroom, that kind of thing. And again, we're called to be light. We're not supposed to hide our lights under a bushel. You know, sometimes, and again, the culture, this, this tolerance thing that has influenced people so much, tolerance is not the same thing as love. And the best thing I can do as light, what did Jesus say? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify you. A light should never be camouflaged. Sometimes we think the best thing we could do is, is like cover ourselves up with something so we won't be too bright because it's going to make people uncomfortable. That's not our job. Our job is to be as bright as God made us, lovingly. But if we're not going to be light, who is? I want to read you this as I finish. This is the end of the message, but after I listened to Ben's message, I wrote him a letter. And I want to read it to you. I said, my dear brother Ben, I wish there was some way to convey to you the sincere appreciation I have for your standing and delivering the message the Lord gave you. If you have a chance to listen to my message from this past Sunday, you'll hear me say something like this to the congregation. If you pray for me, don't pray for me to have a more comfortable life. Pray for me to be bold. I talked about how my heart's desire is for the Lord to raise up warriors, men who will stand, men who will follow the dictates of their conscience rather than melt into the cultural milieu, men who will seek the direction from the Lord first and then and foremost, men who will live courageously and boldly, men who will remember and live by the words God spoke to Joshua, only be strong and very courageous. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Brother, words can't adequately convey to you the depth of my desire for God to raise up a generation of courageous servants. Little did I know he was already starting to answer my prayers the very same Sunday morning that I preached. When I preached, be strong and courageous, because little did I know you, my dear brother, were already being very strong and courageous. You get it? Your pastor's not perfect. You know that. He's one of my best friends. I know that. Sometimes we disagree. So what? But it's necessary for a preacher to be strong and courageous. It's necessary for him to be salty and have enough light. And um, it's necessary for the health of the church and ultimately the survival of the world. So I want to tell you this for for today and for the future and for all times. And anybody listening to this message later, if you don't go to Taylor's Chapel, it may still apply to you. When a preacher preaches something and you don't really like it, take a little bit of time to figure out if it just made you uncomfortable because you're not as salty as you should be. Figure out if it just made you uncomfortable because... What was happening was the light of the Holy Spirit pushing some darkness out of your own life. Pre- preachers aren't perfect. And I know Ben well enough that if you think he preaches something that's not right, talk to him. You know, after service sometime, he would love to do that. We're we're not perfect. I've preached things a few years later I I realized I was exact wrong. We're not perfect. But as preachers we have to do our best to stand boldly. And faithfully try to point people to the one who is perfect. I hope this message was encouraging to you if that's what you needed. I hope it made you uncomfortable if that's what you needed. I hope it helps this church because I love this church. I want you all to continue to be a place of love and light and and God's goodness. This is the first message probably we've listened to this year. And in some way, I hope it will influence the rest of our year. That we will crave and desire and seek truth above all else. I love you all.